A Mucky Business with Tim Farron. Hello and welcome. I'm Tim Farron and this is the show where you get to hear from a Christian politician about how they live out their faith in the mucky business of politics. You might think that politics is tainted by compromise and sin. Well, you'd be right, but then again, so is everything else. And I think Christians should be praying for their brothers and sisters who are in politics and doing so in an informed way. Today, we're going to speak to Lord Paul Boateng. He's a Labour member of the House of Lords, but before that, he was the MP for Brent South and the UK's first Black Cabinet Minister. We'll be talking to him about how he came to faith, his time with New Labour, and his passion for global health equality. All of that to come, but first, here's Cara Bentley. Well, when the House of Commons returned this week, one space on the green benches was left empty to represent the loss of Sir David Amos, who last week was going about his normal business as an MP when he was stabbed at Belfair's Methodist Church in his constituency. A priest who came to the scene says he was denied the opportunity to offer him the last rites, which in the Catholic tradition are the final prayers said to commend the person to God's mercy. Essex police said preserving the crime scene is of utmost importance. Sir David Amos was a Catholic and a supporter of religious freedom and a church service was held to remember him in St Margaret's Church in Westminster. It was attended by the Prime Minister, the Labour leader and several clergy and the Speaker of the House of Commons, Sir Lindsay Hoyle, read from 1 Thessalonians, saying, Brothers and sisters, we do not want you to be uninformed about those who sleep in death so that you do not grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope. For we believe that Jesus died and rose again and so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. But Tim, this must have rocked the Houses of Parliament this week. Yes, Cara, it has. Uh, Westminster is spoken of, often disparagingly, as a village. But it's not a bad analogy. It can be gossipy, insular, runs by its own strange rules and plays host to a post office, a florist and hairdressers. It's also a community where people rub along during long days and late nights, often forming friendships across the political divide. And despite differences in policy, belief and outlook, when one member of its number is so brutally taken simply going about his job, the community comes together to mourn. David Amos was dogged in his love for his constituency and always had a smile for everyone. Since his death, tales have emerged of his kindness to everyone and his determination to serve his community ahead of ministerial ambition. MPs often have a poor reputation as a species, but the majority of us work hard for our constituents, holding local advice sessions called surgeries, where we seek to help local people with issues affecting their lives. This weekend, I held a conventional sit-down surgery in Grange over Sands and did an informal outdoor surgery in the village of Levens. The issues people came to talk to me about included a family facing homelessness, a young man concerned that his friend will be deported, and a community wanting help to deal with a complex planning issue. Westminster is guarded by police with machine guns and airport-style screening. But when an MP is out on their patch, knocking on doors, chatting to local people, this is where we are vulnerable. And MPs have been attacked and even killed meeting their constituents. Joe Cox in 2016, Stephen Timms in 2010, Nigel Jones in 2000, where his assistant, Andrew Pennington, was killed trying to protect him. The part of my job that I love the most is being out among the people. I don't want to hide behind a perspex screen or have a police presence hovering in the doorway. Just like David Amos, I take my A-board out and about in the towns and villages of my constituency, advertising where and when people can turn up to meet me. 
This is the way to have real conversations and ensure that I am in touch with the concerns of those who live in the area that I am proud to serve. This is the bread and butter of being a constituency MP. People may feel that Westminster is out of touch, but as journalist Raphael Baer put in The Guardian, David Amos was killed in the act of getting in touch, making the human connection between the institutions of democracy and the people who are represented there. So how should Christians respond to this awful event? Our first priority must be to pray for David's family, friends and staff. Let's also pray for our elected representatives and their staff for protection as they go about their business. Pray also for God to continue calling his people to serve in politics at all levels at a time when it seems to many so unattractive to do so. Pray for our democracy. We elect our MPs and our councillors and we expect to be able to communicate with them. Let this attack on our democracy not lead to a curtailing of our democracy. Pray for the parliamentary authorities as they seek to find the right balance between openness and safety. And then in our behaviour, let us model kindness in the way we approach our elected representatives, in the way we engage in online debate. David Amos had very clear opinions. There was nothing vague about what he stood for. But with it, he was utterly gracious, generous, and interested in people on a personal level. He was a man of faith, a committed Catholic, and this faith guided the way he loved and served others. He was a genuinely lovely man and a model for the rest of us. A fitting tribute to him would be to seek to be kinder and more respectful to one another in our debates and disagreements. Today, our guest is Lord Paul Botank. He joined the House of Commons in 1987. He's been a minister in the Treasury, the Department of Health and in the Home Office. And he was the High Commissioner to South Africa. Paul, it's an absolute joy to have you with us. We'll just start off by asking what we often ask our guests at the beginning. Tell us about your faith. How did you become a Christian? Well, it's great to be uh, with you, Tim. I mean, Jesus Christ has been a part of my life all my life. I, I was born in, in Hackney, as it happens, but I was christened um, at a very early age, but old enough to walk in my father's uh, village in the eastern region of what was then the Gold Coast, now Ghana. So, Tim, I actually remember my, my christening. My parents were absolutely determined that I should be christened in this church, which my grandfather, uh, it was a, a Scottish Presbyterian church, which my grandfather actually built. He, he founded it uh, as uh, uh, the chief of the village at that time. Uh, and uh, so for me, faith has always been there. I, I didn't have a born again experience. I was brought up in a, in a multi-denominational church uh, in, called the Ridge Church in Accra, uh, Ghana, in the, in the Protestant tradition, but it included both Anglicans, Methodists, and, and Presbyterians. And I was brought up in a society uh, which, being an African society, was one in which faith and the life of the spirit was interwoven in every aspect of life. I mean, I often say that there's a sort of semi-permeable membrane in Africa uh, between this life, uh, the life that was, the life of the ancestors, and the life to come. And the distinctions really aren't, aren't made. So 
I remember my christening. I remember actually, I'm, I'm told that, that I made a run for it uh, as, as a toddler. Uh, but <laughs> nevertheless, I returned or was returned and Christ has stayed with me ever since. That's a great, uh, great metaphor for us all, Paul. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> the, lo the lost Paul, the lost toddler. <laughs> so, um, look, you obviously entered politics, um, and I'm interested really as to what drove you into politics, whether faith had any part in that. Look, my uh, parents' faith was an active faith. They were both very committed uh, to their faith, but they were also committed activists for colonial freedom. You know, I was in at the birth of a nation, Ghana. Uh, my father and mother were political activists. My father became, as I ultimately became, a cabinet minister. Uh, uh, he was a lawyer. I became a lawyer. And for us, it was just part of our life. You felt, it, it, politics for me was a, was a vacation. I mean, I'm a career lawyer. Politics was a calling. I felt that I wanted to make a difference, frankly. Uh, by that time, uh, we had had to flee Ghana. There was a military coup. My dad was flung into prison without trial. We left the country, my mother, myself, my sister with two suitcases. We ended up uh, on a council estate in Elmer Hempstead. You know, I was the only black boy on the estate in the school in the late 1960s. Uh, it, it was a very political time. It was a time of the struggle for civil rights uh, in, the, in the US, uh, it, the anti-apartheid movement uh, in, in the UK. It was a time also, Tim, and I'm, I'm a bit older than you, so I can recall this, in which, frankly, at school, there was a lot of politics. I mean, you were a young socialist, uh, a, a, a young conservative, even a few young, young liberals, Tim, believe it or not, uh, and in those, in those, and we had debates, you know, I was captain of debates at school uh, and th the chairman of the governors was a, I never forget him, it was a, he was a conservative councillor called Councillor Butex and uh, he became mayor ultimately and he, he had a pub called The Bell on the high street in Hemel and uh, every month or so on a Friday night there'd be debates in the room above the pub between young conservatives and young socialists. That's how it was then. Uh, in 1967, 68, you know, it, it was a very political time. So that's how I sort of got into politics. And my faith my, was part of that because it was a faith that believed in active engagement. Um, and that's how it all, it all started. But it didn't start as a career thing. Indeed, it never really was a career thing. It was, it was a vacation. It was a calling. Mm. Mm. I mean, we've been watching many of us um, the the Blair Brown documentary uh, on BBC recently. I find it fascinating. I feel nostalgic for a time when the opposition thought it might be quite a good idea to look like an alternative government. And I wonder if you, I mean, it, it, it's watching that uh, program. Occasionally, you see hints of Gordon Brown's Christian background and even of Tony Blair's faith uh, driving them. I wonder if there's anything just generally. If there's one thing that the Labour Party of today uh, ought to learn from that time, what would it be? I, I don't confuse politics and Christianity. They are Christians in all parties. I have always resisted the suggestion. You know, I remember, you may have found this, that in the run-up to a general election, the various publications, religious publications, ask you to write articles 
saying why I as a Methodist should vote Labour, why I as a Methodist should vote Conservative, why I as a Methodist should vote Lib Dem. I don't actually buy into that. <laughs> the Christian faith, our calling to follow Christ, it leads one uh, in many, many different directions. Uh, and you can be a Christian in any political party. I think you have to be, if you are a Christian, engaged in making a difference in our world and in the life of others. But I don't believe a vote ever brings closer uh, the coming of the kingdom of heaven. So mm. I don't confuse the two. So if you ask me to comment uh, on uh, new labor uh, then and labor today, by all means, I will do so. But I don't think that it's a comment that I would couch in terms of my of my faith. Sure, sure. No, no, it's just you had a ringside seat. <laughs> I believe that politics is about ideas. And in New Labour, we had a big idea and we wanted to put that idea into action. And we were a disciplined election winning machine. Mm. That's the lesson, not just for the Labour Party. That's a lesson for all parties, Tim, that want to win. And you've got to put that idea and that discipline into practice. Then you win. If you don't, you won't. A mucky business with Tim Farron. We're talking with the Labour peer, Lord Paul Boateng. Uh, Paul, you've been a member of Parliament and you've been in the House of Lords. Which is better? Uh, they're very different. Uh, you know, I, I don't see the House of Lords as the waiting room to heaven. <laughs> you know, as well as a, a, a former colleague of mine, rather uncharitably put, when I was having tea with him in the Commons Tea Room the, the other day. Excuse me. No, it, it's the way of continuing to serve, to be engaged, and it's a great privilege. But I'm a House of Commons person. For me, it's the elected chamber that has to be the serious uh, political uh, uh, cockpit. Uh, of uh, the nation and that has to have the decisive voice. But I do think that the House of Lords as an amending chamber, as a place for reflection and consideration, and also for people from many different backgrounds and callings, uh, many different skills all coming, coming together to give uh, of their opinion and to give of their advice, I think it, it has a place. Uh, and I'm honoured to be uh, to be part of it. And you've used the platform the House of Lords uh, has given you, just as you did in the Commons as well, to champion those who are the victims of inequality, and in particular, most recently, of health inequality globally. Tell us a little bit about that. Yes, I mean, the pandemic has taught us, has it not, that public health has to be really at the forefront uh, of our thinking and has to be at the very top of our agenda uh, because without it, uh, we face an existential threat. And what the pandemic has done has been to accentuate uh, the disparities and the inequalities uh, in uh, our country in terms of health, but also in our world. And we cannot be safe uh, from uh, the virus 
through our programme of vaccination if that vaccine isn't widely shared, if we don't ensure uh, that we enable uh, Africa, the developing world, to produce their own vaccine, because they have the manufacturing capacity to do that, but they need us to address the inequalities in our in global inter intellectual policy rules. They need us also to use COVAC, which is the machinery by which we distribute the vaccine globally in a way that doesn't perpetuate the inequalities. It can't be right uh, that in the poorest countries in Africa, uh, about 2% of the entire population mm. has been vaccinated. In the richer countries in Africa, still a small uh, proportion of the population has been vaccinated. So, so long as that remains the case, then we are not going to be safe in this country because mm. those other countries will be the depositories uh, of new uh, variants that will threaten us. We're not going to be able to trade as we need to trade to get ourselves out of this economic recession. So we know we have a moral imperative but also an economic imperative to share the vaccine and to share the intellectual property. And the impact on those countries you talk about where vaccination rates could be at around 2% must be enormous and getting zero coverage in our media. So the impact obviously on, on health, uh, on death rates, on the, in the, on the economy of African countries must be enormous. It is enormous and of course, it is made that much worse by by conflict. Mm. Uh, you know, the conflict that's taking place in the Sahel at this time, uh, where our own troops are engaged as uh, peacekeepers and our thoughts and prayers need to be with them uh, in Mali and with the other uh, uh, peacekeeping uh, forces. Uh, but also the COVID crisis has made worse, has exacerbated the uh, ethnic uh, and tribal uh, conflicts that exist, for instance, in, in a place like Ethiopia, or the linguistic conflicts uh, that exist in the, in the Cameroon, where the Anglophone minority are being persecuted, uh, are being massacred uh, on a daily basis, with attacks, Tim, on uh, churches and on church schools in particular. And we don't hear enough about that. We don't see the Commonwealth taking the action on that uh, that they took, for instance, uh, when I was uh, a, a young man on uh, South Africa. We don't see uh, the UK and France, who are the former colonial powers in, in, in the Cameroon, coming together to address that. But the good news is there is a peace process. It is being led by uh, the faith communities, but they need support, practical, material, as well as moral support from our governments. And thank you for opening our eyes to that. We, we, we say on this programme, the important thing for Christians is to care about particular issues. And you can't care about them really, unless you know about them. Exactly. Fundamental to loving our neighbour is understanding that our neighbour, our people we may never meet. Um, and to meet their needs is something which is clearly our our duty and we really are grateful to you Paul for for drawing these things to our attention and for your for your passion for them I want to just, just finish off really because we talked about your 
um, your time in the House of Commons, your time now in the House of Lords, there is another place where you stand on your hind legs and, and speak, and that is behind the pulpit. Um, you are a Methodist lay preacher. What's the difference from your perspective um, when it comes to speaking to the, the floor of a, of a chamber in Parliament or speaking to your congregation? Communication is always important, Tim, as you know very well, because you're a great uh, communicator. But at the end of the day, Tim, it's the message. And the most important message is the message we find in the Bible. The most important message is a message shared with us by our Lord. And that's a message that has to be paramount. Uh, and it's, it's God's love and the transforming power of God's love. Uh, and, you know, what we've got to try and do, uh, not just in the world of politics, but in every aspect of life, is to suffuse uh, the, the love of God into all that we do, into our actions, into what we do and what we represent on, on this earth. So I find constant joy and solace, but also a spur to action in God's love uh, for us. And for me, Tim, and you, you've been there, you've done it, you know what, what the life of, of politics is. It can be corrosive, actually. It can be deeply, deeply corrosive. Uh, but I, I always think, you know, the story of, of, of Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, Daniel in the, in, the lion's, in the lion's den. You know, you've got to just hold on, hold on to, to God's love and to, and to what is right. And there's a wonderful, wonderful Negro spiritual with the lines, dare to be a Daniel, dare to stand alone, dare to have a purpose, dare to make it known. That's what we've got to do, isn't it? Paul, what an outstanding peroration. <laughs> I want to turn up to one of your services. <laughs> Thank you very, very, very much. It's been you a pleasure to have you with us, Lord Paul Boating. Great being with you. A Mucky Business with Tim Farron. Each week we answer a question from you, the listener, about how Christianity and politics can work together. Maybe you're thinking through a particular issue that you're not sure about. Maybe you don't know why people disagree on a certain policy. If you've got a question, please write it in an email to farron at premier.org.uk. This week, we've got a question from Paul in London. Hi, Tim. My question's really around, um, you know, we elect our MPs to lead us and make decisions for the common good, which obviously are Christians we should be supporting um, and we don't hold referenda on every issue and I think for example uh, the government brought in the plastic bag charge and it led to a massive reduction in the usage of plastic bags but if they'd done a referendum on that I don't know if it would have got through by a majority but I think uh, coming back really to that question about MPs leading us for the common good versus vocal uh, opposition, uh, particularly with social media and so on. I just wonder if, in a way, our democracy is being undermined currently by uh, the views of local groups so vocally put and getting their way. Thanks very much. Bye. Thanks, Paul. It's a great question, multi-layered. Let, let's be really optimistic and positive and say, actually, some of the things you describe, um, different campaign groups of different sorts, local and national, people expressing opinions on social media to their elected representatives, that's, that kind of is the stuff of a healthy democracy. You want people to have opinions and to organise to try and put them forward to those who make the decisions. Uh, I remember studying Athenian democracy uh, as a student, the idea of direct democracy, none of this electing a member of 
parliament, but actually directly deciding everything yourself. Everything was a referendum. And that was sold as being this pure form of democracy where everybody had a say on everything, except it wasn't. Because for Athenian democracy to work, it was basically the landed blokes uh, who were able to make decisions. They sat around in a in an arena all day um, discussing this, that, and, the, and everything else, and making all these decisions, terribly democratic, but only possible because of the existence of women and slaves. And now we think that that is not the way to underpin a democracy. So, and also Athens wasn't huge, was it? So let's be honest, in a country of what, 60, 70 million people, having uh, indirect democracy where we elect a person to be our uh, representative who goes to parliament and makes decisions on our behalf, we can then lobby via social media, by seeing them in their surgery, by threatening to vote against them next time around if you don't do the thing they don't do the thing you want them to do that's that is a healthy democracy there's lots of things i think we can be negative about about the, um, the the state of our democracy and i sometimes am but actually i think some of the things you've described actually make a richness and a, 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 and give some health to uh, that which we call our parliamentary democracy today a mucky business with tim farron well as we come to the end of uh, this episode let's Join together in prayer. Father, we just thank you for the life of David Amos, but we cry out to you in horror at what has happened. Uh, and we lift up to you David's family, his wife, his children, the wider family, and all those who knew him best and loved him most dearly. We pray that you would comfort them. We pray that you would direct them towards you, the source of all comfort, of all meaning. Lord, we also just pray for uh, those who are our elected representatives and for their staff, that you would keep them safe, uh, that you would help them to focus on serving uh, the people they have been put there to serve. I pray, Lord, for our democracy. I pray uh, that we would not make concessions um, that would uh, make members of parliament more distant from the people that they serve. And I pray also that um, those of us who are involved in politics uh, would have and hold passionate views, um, be clear in them, um, but hold them in a way which is kind and which does not denigrate the humanity of those who think things that are quite different. Lord, we also want to thank you for the work of Lord Paul Boateng, and we thank you for his heart for parts of our world which um, have uh, much less in terms of resources than, than we have. Uh, we've lifted up those people in uh, the world who have not been blessed with the vaccine, those who have not um, got anything like the same level of health care as we have in this country. Help us to remember who our neighbour is, and our neighbour is everybody, everybody. Uh, and we are charged to love our neighbour and to do so sacrificially. So let us focus upon that in the coming weeks as we uh, hold up those parts of the world that uh, do not have what we have up to you and seek to intervene on their behalf. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Don't forget to subscribe so that other people can see the podcast and we can continue racing up the charts next week. We'll be speaking to Andy Flanagan, the executive director of Christians in Politics, about why he thinks more Christians should get involved in politics, but also whether he tells some Christians to avoid it. Thanks for listening. You can listen to the podcast of this programme online by searching for A Mucky Business. Don't forget, if you have any questions you'd like to put to Tim in a future show, email farron at premier.org.uk.